Welcome to this podcast produced here at Queen's University Belfast. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's, and I'm delighted to be joined today for this In Conversation by Dr. Rashmi Singh, Associate Professor of International Relations at PUC Minas in Brazil. Dr. Singh holds a doctorate from the London School of Economics and Political Science, an MA from JNU, and a BA from Delhi University. She's co-founder and co-director of the Research Network on Terrorism, Radicalization and Transnational Crime, and an Anniversary Fellow at the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, CSTPV, at the University of St Andrews, where she was based between 2008 and 2016. Dr Singh is an area specialist whose work focuses on terrorism, counter-terrorism, organised crime and political violence in the Middle East and South Asia, She's fluent in Hindi, English, Portuguese and Urdu and has a working knowledge of Arabic. Rashmi, I'd like to focus our conversation mainly today around your excellent 2011 book, Hamas and Suicide Terrorism. In that book, you suggest the need for what you call, quote, a multi-causal, multi-level understanding of how and why suicide attacks emerged and were used in the Palestinian scenario. Can you explain, please, for listeners why such an approach is important and why it was required? Absolutely. First of all, uh, Richard, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure, as always, to work with you and see you again, or uh, in quotations, see you again. Um, and I hope that um, your listeners will find what I say today uh, helpful and useful in understanding this very, very pertinent phenomenon. In terms of the book um, and what I was mentioning in the book in 2011, I think that that position of mine holds today as well. Um, essentially, more than ever today, we need a multi-causal, multi-level understanding of suicide attacks, how they emerge in any given scenario, any given political context. Um, of course, uh, my book was the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict, um, but that holds very, very true today. Um, the reason I actually approached my own study of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians uh, with this particular lens was because I found none of the explanations that existed seemed to fully account for the variety of incentives that pushed violent non-state actors to use suicide attacks in that particular context. Um, we, we have a lot of literature on, the materi- uh, on this particular phenomenon. The material ranges from explanations from occupation to outbidding between groups. Um, we have explanations that go around the idea of religious ideology, which reappear again and again. Um, so these were, these were very, very pertinent accounts. These were very pertinent explanations that ha- had a certain degree of validity. But my own experience, um, when I did my own field work in the territories um, over the course of 2004-2005, so the height of the Second Intifada, essentially, essentially found these to be partial explanations. They were not able to encompass the full nuances, the richness of the logic behind a campaign of suicide attacks. And this is really important, this element of campaign. We are not talking about isolated suicide attacks. We're not talking about single issues. Um, uh, attacks here. We're talking about a sustained campaign of violence. And that is a cycle that requires participation by multiple levels, multiple actors. And I found that thus far, 
the explanations were either completely focused on the organization or they were focused entirely on the individual and they were not really holistic. They were not able to give a full idea of why and how it was happening. A lot of the explanations also completely ignored or undervalued the position and role of the society and the long-term consequences of the conflict. Um, anybody who has any knowledge of suicide attacks understands that often when we see the appearance of suicide attacks in any situation, any conflict, it's often a second generation tactic, if not a third generation tactic. It's not normal for a group to turn to suicide attacks as the first option. Um, and, and this goes, this applies even to something like 9-11. We, we talk about 9-11 when we talk about suicide attacks, but Al-Qaeda used 9-11 after it had already done USS Cole and also a whole host of other attacks before that. Um, so no matter which organization we're talking about, um, it's not a first call tactic. And so I found that this was really important to encompass in an explanation. Uh, multiple levels of analysis, also multiple kinds of violence. Suicide violence is something that is extremely complex. Of course, it has a strategic tactical purpose, but something that I always emphasize in my own studies and my own teaching is that there is a symbolic aspect of this. All kinds of violence, violence, our choices of violence say something. If you are going to put a suitcase with a bomb in a bus, as opposed to strapping a bomb on yourself, those are two very different messages that you are giving to multiple audiences. And I think that is something else that I found that the explanations that existed at that point um, didn't encompass because they were not multi-causal and multi-level. And so as a result of this, I found that um, by no means was it something that I uh, intended to start off with, but that's where my own study of the phenomenon actually drew me towards a much more holistic understanding to, to try to really figure out first for myself and then in my book, share that with a broader audience, um, this, this, this very nuanced aspect of the phenomenon. Um, also, I think this is something, you know, you, you asked me why was this approach important and why was it required? I would argue that it, remains important and it remains required because unless we understand these dynamics, the dialectic between the individual, the group, the, the, the interactions between the group and the society, um, the individual and the society, we, we, we will not actually be able to come up with a, with an accurate understanding. And as a result of that, accurate counterterrorism policies. Um, I don't, I don't believe that we can make good policy accurate policy without a full understanding. And therefore, a full understanding, in my view, is a holistic understanding. Thank you very much. And resonant with what you've just articulated there, Rashmi, is the fact that in the book, you do emphasize very much the need to see Hamas's suicide attacks as what you call rational acts of violence. And again, to quote you, you say you need to move away from the approaches that tend to project the suicide attack as an Islamic or a Middle Eastern phenomenon. Can I ask you, in terms of that latter projection of seeing suicide attacks as Islamic or Middle Eastern. How resilient has that latter projection remained despite the arguments of scholars like yourself? I think this is much more per pertinent and much more important than ever. Um, I'm a historian by training, first and foremost. 
And so I always look, tend to look at things in the, the long durée, so to speak, the long term. Um, we have had a very clear focus on suicide terrorism and specifically Islamist-related suicide terrorism for the last 20, 30 years. In historical terms, that's not a very long time at all. Um, so certainly by all empirical data that we have for the last 20 or 30 years, the phenomenon seems to be linked to the Middle East, seems to be linked to groups that are Islamist in their leaning. But by no means does this mean or neglect or negate the fact that this is a tactic that has been used by other religious groups, other non-religious secular groups. Um, and this is certainly a phase that I'm sure will, will evolve into something else. Um, one of the things that is very, very important to remember when we are um, studying this phenomenon is that one of the first groups when we study suicide terrorism that actually, or suicide attacks to be more specific, if, to, to, to take the normative out of this, this conversation, um, one of the first groups to actually use it was a state actor. When we study anything related to suicide, we always start our story with the kamikazes. Um, and so, um, and the kamikazes were a completely culturally, ethnically separate phenomenon. Also, it's very interesting to, uh, interesting thing to remember that right now, um, we see a huge uptick in suicide attacks in the Middle East, and these are very closely correlated to conditions of war. One of the things that we have seen, if we look at the study of terrorism in the long term, anytime we have conditions of macro violence, conditions of war, they generate conditions for the acceleration and the um, conduct of other kinds of violence, and terrorism is included in that. And that can be practiced either by non-state actors or state actors. And so as a result, for me, what is happening in the Middle East, the, the, the way the phenomenon has exploded in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, is very, very closely related to the conditions of war in those spaces. It's actually very interesting. If we look at, for example, the, the figures for Europe, uh, Europol and, and various other um, uh, sources, it's within the terrorist, non-state terrorist scenario inside Europe, Islamist terrorism is actually the lowest incidences of terrorism. Um, there's all sorts of other terrorism, including extreme right-wing terrorism and all sorts of other terrorism that we can't actually categorize um, and, and it's, it's best to use as a, an other category. Having said that, a lot of the Islamist terrorism tends to revert back in this particular period to suicide attacks. And so the lethality of the attacks, as few as they are, tend to be higher. And that tends to give Islamist terrorism a lot more focused, and of course, suicide terrorism a lot more focused than all the other kinds of attacks that are being um, conducted in this space. Um, unfortunately, um, we have we have scholars that argue that suicide attacks seem to have, well, you know, um, suicide attacks have become normalized over time. But I would argue that we can take this much, much more uh, into the I idea of at least for the common person, the association with Islamism and Islamist groups has also become normalized. And we can see this, for example, in the evolution of xenophobic hate speech in um in across across various countries, um, especially when we come to extreme right wing groups and how they associate Islam and Islamism with 
um, violence, um, uh, political violence, terrorism, and suicide attacks. But this needs to be challenged. This really, really needs to be challenged. And the way to do this is to view this in the long term, in the historical perspective. Even when we start looking at non-state actors, of course, you know, um, suicide attacks as non-state practice uh, emerge in the Middle East with Hezbollah and the attacks on the U.S. and French barracks. But before we see this enormous uptick as a result of the global war on terror post-2002 in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, the, the group that was most associated with suicide attacks were the Tamil Tigers. So the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam in Sri Lanka, who are, depending on which view you look at, either Hindu or secular as a group. They also have a very, very elaborate martyrdom language narrative. Um, they have, um, um, to be honest, most of the real innovation that was made in suicide attacks was made by the Tamil Tigers. They are the only group in the world to have successfully assassinated two heads of state, including the Indian Prime Minister. Um, they are the only group in the world that have successfully conducted these kinds of attacks in the air, in the sea, underwater. So in terms of technology as well, in terms of the evolution of, for example, the suicide vest, it's all the Tamil Tigers. A lot of the tactics that we see in Afghanistan, in Iraq, especially with um, al-Qaeda, um, with um, Islamic State in Syria, are almost blueprint Tamil Tiger tactics from the war in Sri Lanka. So, of course, the numbers have evolved as technology has evolved, as war has evolved. But by no means is this a tactic that is solely associated with the Middle East or with Islamist groups. And we need to challenge that. And we need to challenge that by looking at this in the long term. Of course, my work focuses on Islamist terrorism because it looks at Hamas. Um, but this is something that we need to put in a broader context. And by no means can we say this is an Islamist or a Middle Eastern phenomenon and be accurate. And your, your work has always struck me as, as wanting to stress that very long set of past and futures, which I think is not always the case within the terrorism literature. And it is a really welcome, welcome aspect of it, I think. You conclude your book, Hamas and Suicide Terrorism, by suggesting that, as you put it, unless and until the core concerns of a deep-rooted discontent are addressed and resolved, you say, segments of the Palestinian population will continue to use violence. And reflecting on that and looking at the current moment, there have been recent Middle Eastern initiatives, including American initiatives involving former US President Trump, and we now have a new US president in place. What's your current reading, Rashmi, of the likelihood, as we stand now, of those core Palestinian concerns being addressed? In one word, bleak. <laughs> um, honestly, I think the, the Palestinian situation is one of the, the greatest tragedies of our modern times. Um, even if we look at the most recent crisis, which is the pandemic and COVID, we can see the effects of Israeli occupation on the Palestinians and Palestinian territory. Um, as of mid-February, if I'm not mistaken, there were over 20% uh, of the population um, already vaccinated in Israel uh, within a, 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 the span of a few weeks. Um, that figure stands at somewhere 2 or 3% for the Palestinian population in West Bank and Gaza, uh, with much poorer health facilities and lack of access. So um, that is just one recent example of how um, dire the situation is 
in reality for the Palestinian population that is living in these Palestinian territories. So Trump was essentially uh, the first sitting U.S. president to visit J the Jerusalem's Western Wall, which is, again, uh, it's, it's something that was completely unprecedented. He also announced the United States would recognize Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel, which was a complete reversal of decades of American policy, because as we know, the Palestinians actually see the city, or at least the eastern part of Jerusalem, as the capital of whatever future state of Palestine will come into existence. Um, as part of this process, um, the Trump administration moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, closed the consulate in eastern Jerusalem, essentially cutting off diplomatic channels for the Palestinians. Um, he also, uh, President Trump also brokered several deals with Israel and the wider Arab world, which for the Palestinians was a great betrayal. Uh, I always find one of the earliest things I read about the Palestinians is how they called themselves the Kamisol Usman the shirt of the Caliph Usman, because when the Caliph was killed, when he was murdered, they took his bloodied shirt and they ran through the streets to declare war. And that's what the Palestinians claim the Arabs do with them. They, they treat them like a bloody shirt. When they are needed, they are pulled out to incite war, to incite support. But in reality, the support and um, cooperation from the Arab states remains limited. So this, this um, brokering of peace between Israel and the Arab world, which um, it was for decades conditioned with Israeli withdrawal from occupied Palestinian territory, was seen as a huge betrayal. So you can see the grievances are not going away. They're actually being augmented thanks to what has happened under, under President Trump. Um, in addition, Netanyahu, just as the Trump administration was winding out, um, actually approved plans to build a number of new housing units for Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And um, the Trump administration, specifically Trump's Secretary of State Pompeo, um, had also reversed a very long-standing U.S. position uh, on settlements, which are regarded as illegal by the international community. And he had actually claimed something along the lines of how these were not per se inconsistent with international law, and the U.S. had actually been wrong in acknowledging them as inappropriate and unlawful, um, so which was a complete reversal. Now, the Biden administration hopefully um, will return to sort of a pre-Trump approach, a much more Obama and previous president-like approach, which is less overt in um, their support of the Israeli occupation of of land, uh, which has been internationally recognized as unlawful. Um, but at the same time, none of the previous presidents, including um, Obama, have ever, although have, they have been more even-handed, they have done very little to change status quo on the ground. Um, and one of the things we have noticed, you know, that when Israel historically gains advantage in any any aspect, it's very, very difficult to gain that back. Um, it's more land loss. It's more water under the bridge, so to speak, which makes long-term peace much, much more complicated. Having said that, um, the hope is that with the Biden administration, even if there is no great reversal or no great change in status quo on the ground, there is going to be a prioritization of the two-state solution uh, and a sort of re revival of the, the very long-frozen 
peace process. Now, uh, we know that there has been some movement in the UN Security Council over the last few weeks around this, and hopefully that will, that will help. But in reality, um, you know, things are looking really, really bleak. There is some hope between Biden, uh, the, the, pre, uh, the Palestinians are actually going to have elections, uh, this summer, at least that is the plan. And that's going to happen after, I think, almost 15 years. And the hope is that that is going to lead to some degree of unification between the Palestinian leadership, which has been a disaster. The, the fight between Hamas and Fatah has led to a complete fragmentation of the, the movement for independence and a statehood. Um, so there are some elements of hope, but the, the real problem is that the everyday life of the Palestinian on the ground is not going to change. It's not going to change by um, any large degree. It's not going to change for a very long time. And so, you know, in terms of what does this mean for long-term grievances and, um, you know, addressing core Palestinian concerns, I'm not sure that the prospects are anything but bleak for a very long time. Unless the international community moves on this, um, quite decisively, unless there is a retraction of settlements, uh, because there is a complete bantusization happening of the West Bank at this point, in terms of how contiguous Arab populations are consistently being separated through very, very strategically placed settlements. Um, it's, it's essentially a long-term land-grabbing operation. And unfortunately, that is just going to generate more violence, more terrorism, and unless we can come in quite firmly as an international community here, there's going to be no real change on the ground. And the violence will be likely to continue. And, and returning to, to that violence, Rashmi, the scholarly literature on suicide attacks, on suicide terrorism has become very extensive. Could you say something for listeners about which scholars within that field on suicide terrorism have most influenced your own work and why that is? Absolutely. That's a, that is a very difficult question. There's a number of scholars with very solid scholarship, uh, very many innovative ways of looking at the phenomenon um, in very specific aspects. And, and so many come to mind. Um, Nicole Argo, who has not done very much work on this, but she focused very specifically on the Palestinian territory and looked, did a lot of interviews, um, some very, very insightful in interviews about how historical experience actually leads people to adopt violence, including horrific violence, such as suicide attacks. Um, work by Asaf Magadam, um, Hafez, Pedazur, all of these individuals, scholars, have looked at aspects of suicide attacks in different contexts in very, very innovative, specific manners. And I think I've always turned to their work. These are older scholars. These are the scholars that really started coming out in, with, with the work on suicide attacks when I was still doing my doctorate. Um, I think after that, um, a lot of the newer scholarship, there's, there's a flood of literature post 2010, especially around suicide attacks. But a lot of the new scholarships I find sort of build upon the ideas that these original authors actually suggested and came up with and then it engages with these ideas or develops them a bit more or looks at them a little differently and so um this is this is really interesting i mean of course there are some exceptions there's some there's some very interesting ideas i, I most recently read something by um a, 
scholars called Shire and Hersey um, that were talking about things like simple versus complex suicide attacks and using some very interesting data to 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 make their argument. But otherwise, I find it's more of the same. So it's, you know, this whole idea around is religion important? Is it not important? Rationalism, economy, uh, and how is economy and economic um, poverty linked to the idea of political violence and suicide, indoctrination, recruitment, you know, the same, the same lot of stuff. Um, so I think when, when I think of those scholars that really influenced me, I prefer those who offered the bird's eye view of the phenomenon, which is a bit rarer. And this is because I think it ties into other literatures, um, not only in terrorism, but broadly in terms of the um, philosophy of violence, uh, the history of violence. And here, I think there are two people that stand out. Um, Martha Crenshaw, which is, of course, um, I think it's impossible not to be impacted by her. And again, what is impressive by both, about both these scholars that I'm going to mention is that they have written very few things specifically on the subject of suicide terrorism. But the material that they have produced is amazing because literally you, each sentence that they write references larger bodies of literature, references much deeper work, much deeper thinking. So I think Martha Crenshaw in a couple of her um, sort of review essays and responses has been spectacular with this. And the other person who, who comes to mind is Diego Gambetta. Diego Gambetta actually produced one book on this um, in which he wrote, it was an edited volume, and he wrote the foreword and the conclusion. And it was a extraordinary compilation of essays on this subject. I think it was quite early. It was around 2004, 2005 that this book came out. Um, but even in just his foreword and his conclusion, he was very impactful. He, he has some of the most sophisticated, nuanced thinking around the definition of what is a suicide attack, what is what is the parameter between a high-risk, uh, um, no-chance uh, versus a suicide attack. Some, some very, very conceptual ideas that he engages with in a very fluid manner, which I find very interesting and very helpful. My own scholarship, the longer I stay in a f the field, seems to tend more towards these bird's eye holistic views of conceptualizing things. And and one of the things that I'm finding is that the the different aspects of my work, when I, I like writing the writing these bird's eye view pieces because it's a way to tie in my multiple specific areas of work. I, I have a very small, short attention span. So I work on multiple things together. And these bird's eye view projects are fantastic to actually see how these things connect together um, and how they actually are able to speak more broadly to violence as a practice um, in general, as a philosophy in general. The the other work I think that stands out for me, and again, um, this this is a, a a text that is part of Diego Gambetta's original edited volume, is by Statis Calivas uh, and his um, co-author Ignacio Sanchez Cruz, which is one of the preliminary works that has been done on the absence of suicide terrorism in some spaces, and um, and this is something that has not really been developed, and they kind of tease this idea. And this is something that, for example, Erica Chenoweth develops in her recent book about how we need to really understand the absence of violence if you're going to understand violence. And the same way, so 
Calavas and Sanchez Cruz are arguing how we need to actually understand the absence of suicide attacks if you're going to understand suicide attacks. So this is this there's a lot of merit, I believe, in this kind of looking at it from a different bird's eye view and focusing on the gaps approach that some of these authors who Crenshaw, for example, references this in one of her pieces when she actually talks about the idea of subcultures within specific organizations and disputes that exist in terrorist groups over the value and the morality of killing civilians, for example. Something that we know happened very obviously within Hamas, within Hezbollah, within Al-Qaeda. So I think it's these authors that deal with the very conceptual bird's eye view of the phenomenon that, that have always drawn me. Thank you. And Spreading it out to the study of terrorism as such, I mean, you mentioned a number of authors there who've been very influential in the wider field, haven't you? And the, the study of terrorism obviously expanded vastly after the 9-11 attacks. Can you say something about what your reading is of what the main achievements of the field in terms of the study of terrorism have been in the, in the past 20 years? Um, as a student of terrorism and as a teacher of terrorism, I think one of the most pertinent developments has been the GTD, the Global Terrorism Database. Um, I think uh, the University of Maryland and START under Gary Lefree, uh, and more recently, I think it's Barnef now, um, who have actually developed this amazing database with obvious gaps and obvious flaws, as all databases have, that is an amalgamation of material that we can actually use to verify and we can very clearly leverage for our qualitative arguments that have been made so far. I think that has given the study of terrorism an added weight that had been missing for very, very many years. I think there were some fantastic, I do qualitative work myself. So by this, this is by no means to um, disregard the power of qualitative work. But I do think that the amazing qualitative work that had been produced in the field over the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, was really given a great deal of weight with the availability of the GTD. Of course, there were other databases, but they were behind paywalls and security restrictions. And this is something that has really democratized the use of quantitative material in terrorism studies. So for me, that is that is very, very pertinent as a development. It's a very positive development. Quite closely linked to this is the expansion of the research agenda in terrorism studies. And this is something that I see in the core journals that exist, um, terrorism and political violence, studies in conflict and terrorism, perspectives on terrorism. It's fascinating, fascinating to see the sheer range of topics that are being covered by authors in all sorts of places. And that is, um, I've been in now in this field for, wow, 20 years. Time flies when you're having fun. And it's fantastic to see that. It's really, really um, gratifying. And again, one of the things that I say um, quite strongly as a person who comes from the global south, has um, lived and worked in the global north, and then has very clearly chosen to move out to back to the global south again, is the fact that we are now starting to see a discussion of non-Western terrorism appear much more effectively in the terrorism studies literature in order to understand not only how context varies and matters and how this impacts our understanding of core concepts, but also in terms of how these can actually further these different contexts and 
challenges and scenarios can actually further our understanding of terrorism as a whole. And I think that's fascinating. Um, and again, you know, there's, there's other elements. I think there's some fantastic advancement being made on things like the financing of terrorism, the relationship of terrorism, media, technology. Um, it's, I think, especially the, the studies around the use of social media and the internet in terms of what we knew with Al Qaeda, with what we know with Islamic State, and now with the very different way the far right is using it, the advancement and the sophistication in the study of this aspect is is really really good. Um, and and of course uh, the terrorism crime nexus and the the leaps and bounds that that specific space has taken. So those are my specific areas of interest that I can see. Um, show vast advancement. But in general, I think terrorism studies has been moving in a very positive direction. Um, there is a certain depth, a certain weight to the studies today that perhaps did not exist when we started with a lot of the majority of the literature that came out after 9-11. Thanks. And what about Rashmi Singh's terrorism studies specifically? Can you tell us what you're currently working on in terms of scholarly projects? So I told you I have a very short attention span. <laughs> so I have multiple things running at the same time. Um, I have, um, I've been continuing with a project that I've been looking at terrorist innovation that, of course, you, Richard, got me involved with in the first place. So I have you to thank for that. Um, and actually, that has taken a very interesting turn where I'm looking at the role of art and antiquities um, and the innovative use of art and antiquities to finance terrorism as a, as a way of um, moving that particular research agenda forward. Um, I think if you're based in Latin America, it's very difficult to stay away from organized and transnational crime. So one of the things that I've started looking at much more closely is the terror crime nexus as well. And uh, this is actually something that has been fascinating me, not only in terms of the kinds of violent tactics that are crossovers between uh, organized criminal organizations and terrorist organizations, but also in terms of how they converse and dialogue in other ways, whether it comes to the financing aspect or recruitment or the construction of narratives. I find some very fascinating overlaps between the two. And so I'm sort of in starting to study that um, a, a little bit much, much much more profoundly, you can argue. And of course, I've gone back to studying India again. I think India is something that I will never leave from my research. When I get tired of it, I go back to different parts, the Middle East in my case. But inevitably, I go back to India. So I'm actually uh, on the in the process of doing a book project on terrorism in India. And hopefully, if this pandemic allows, <laughs> we shall have that out and up running as uh, sooner rather than later. Um, so those are those are the the projects that I'm working on now. And so hopefully, keeping me busy for a few few more years to come. I hope so too. Well, Rashmi, it's been great hearing your ideas, insights, and arguments today. I look forward in future to our welcoming you in person to Queen's University Belfast and getting you back to Belfast again when times are more propitious. Um, but it's been great for people to get a chance to hear about your work. Uh, for that, thank you very much. And it's been great to be in conversation with Dr. Rashmi Singh. Thank you. <laughs>